All right, we're gonna continue uh, in our series in the book of Exodus. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter seven. We have Exodus seven all the way through chapter 12 this morning. And so, yeah, just hold your spot there. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and the ushers will walk down your aisle and get you a copy of God's word. Just go ahead and hold, hold your hand up high so they can see you. And if you don't own a Bible, keep the one that we were handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of the Lord, okay? So before we jump in today, this is the particular section in which we're gonna go through the plagues. We're gonna go through the first nine plagues, um, and then next week we'll come back and we'll save the last plague for the Passover, the angel of death, and so forth for one particular week. One, because all the nine plagues in themselves are showing God's judgment, but it, it's not the ones in which God delivers the people of God, particularly at this, at this moment from, and so we'll deal with that next week. Today is plague after plague after plague after plague, and so if you grew up around uh, church, um, if you've heard about the book of Exodus, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, you've heard about the plagues. One of the things I was racking my head with is because I grew up going to church and I've, I've been a pastor for a little bit now, I've never heard a sermon on the plagues. And after studying this week, I know why. Uh, so here we go. Um, so here's, here's what we're gonna, we're gonna look at for, the, for, the, for this. There's one, stepping back and looking at the, the goal of today and a particularly Exodus and the whole Bible is not for us to particularly just know the plagues, but the goal of Exodus and the goal of the Bible is to reveal to us who is God and what God is like, all right? And we said this last week, and I gotta say this again for us to really understand what's, what's happening in the Bible. The Bible in itself is not a self-help book. Like it's not written to, to give you some life hacks. Um, it's not written to help you, particularly even in just your marriage or relationships or how to get a better job or so forth. It's not written for those particular purposes. Um, the Bible in itself is not written to make you your best you. The Bible in itself is written and it's left as a record to reveal to us who God is that we may worship him. Like flat out, okay, I'm, I'm being very, very clear here. It is not just a book about morality of what to do and what not to do. It is a book that reveals to us who God is and what he's like. So as we walk through the particular text today, we're gonna go through a lot. There's gonna be a lot of gnats and a lot of frogs and all sorts of craziness. This will begin to show to us the character of who God is and what he's like that we may be able to worship him. And so keep that in the forefront of, of, our, of, our, of our minds. Now, um, also one of the things to note is when it comes to the book of Exodus and particularly this section, it is not Pharaoh and versus Moses. It is not uh, the people of Israel versus Pharaoh. It is 100% the God of this universe, the Hebrew God versus Pharaoh. Everybody else is just watching. It is God beginning to display his glory for the whole world and particularly for his people to begin to know what he's like and that what he begins to display in his love is he begins to display his judgment. And that's a topic it's a concept that many of us are not comfortable with when it comes to God. However, God is very comfortable with being God. He doesn't need us to be comfortable with it, okay? And then we begin to see what that's like and how that is even an expression of not only his character, but also his love. And so that's where we're gonna go in our time this morning. Also, there's like four chapters we're going through. We're not gonna go through every single word. There's gonna be a lot of paraphrasing. And so you can go back, you should go back, and you can read it um, on your own just in case you thought I, uh, I missed something, okay? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you bless our time and not in just a general sense that you would take our hearts and our minds by your spirit 
and help us to see that you are God and you are God alone. Not just what you can do for us, but just who you are and that we would be able to adore you and worship you for who you are. The Father, our praise and our adoration, our inspiration for all of life would flow from who you are. So God, I pray that whatever it is we're going through, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in that are very, very real, that your presence would overwhelm us and that you would lead us into worshiping you. God, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name, amen. So I was talking to my mom the other day, uh, I talked to my mom quite a bit, and uh, uh, we were talking about just particular things about this particular month in September, who's got birthdays in September, and particularly how we, we lost my grandma, my grandfather, and my uncle all in this month, like three years in a row, uh, several, several years ago. And so we were talking about that, and it made me start thinking about my grandfather, and particularly um, how my, his whole life, or not his whole life, I didn't know him his whole life, um, He's my grandfather. And so we, but my whole life, how I never liked him until he died, which is like the weirdest thing. I was like, oh, it's just the way it was. He was a very um, intense person uh, about everything. He was a pastor of our church. He was a preacher. I don't think I ever seen him smile. Um, he would say things to me like sports is not everything. And to me, you know, back then I used to like sports. Things have changed. Uh, he'd say, you know, football's not everything. And I'm like, he's a liar. So of course I didn't listen to him when he was preaching because he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? So no joke, we had a small church and so everybody knew everybody in the church and my grandfather would begin preaching and sermons would you think I'd go along. My grandfather would preach for a long time, guys. Like there was, people would say, what about after church? It's like, do whatever the spirit leads. My, father, my grandfather would just preach and preach and preach. Well, what he would do sometimes, this has happened more than once, is if I fell asleep in the service, he'd see me. And he'd be like, oh, wake that boy up. Stop and move a sermon. Wake that boy up. Stand up. Stand up. And I'd have to stand up during the rest of the sermon, right? As like a 16-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever, all my friends looking at me like, he got you. I'm like, all right, whatever, right? <laughs> so, so when, but however, when he passed away, you know what families do, we all gather around and people begin to share stories and they shared all these stories about him. And I began to hear all of these amazing things that he had done and um, different people he had been with, how he had served in our, in, our, in our army. I didn't even know that. How he had played football and was an all-American football player in high school and had gone to UCLA. I'm like, he played football? And he ever told me this? He told me football was, what? what? Right? And there was just all of these stories. And then at his funeral, he had all these friends that had come and they would speak about how he had helped them and how he had served them and, and um, all these amazing things that he did. And I thought, wow, like, this dude was amazing, right? He was an amazing dude. And then I thought, you know what? If he was that good at sports and he's related to me, I got a chance, right? And so there's, there was, this, there was this, this sense of going, telling the stories of who he is. Now, the reason why we tell those stories is so that we know who our grandfather is and that I could tell those stories to my kids who have never met him, like what your great-grandfather, what he's like, right? When the Bible begins to speak about God, it is not, again, so much as it's we just know what to do and what not to do. We know how to do those things because we know who God is. It doesn't just tell us what relationships look like. Um, it shows us what relationship with God looks like, and thus we know what relationships ought to look like. That it puts God at the center, not by giving us abstract facts or just concepts, but giving us concrete reality of what God is like as he reveals himself through creation, through his word, and namely, through his son, Jesus. And so as the writer of Exodus begins to write this, he's writing these things to show forth the might, the sovereignty, the power, and the control 
of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who, by the way, is showing up in ways that he has not shown up for his people to display, not just to Israel, but to the rest of the world, what God is like, that we may be able to continue to still tell the stories about our God. And so the way we pick up here is just kind of a quick recap as we got to start in the beginning, right? In the very beginning, the beginning, like Genesis, which by the way, means beginning, all right? In the very beginning, God creates the world, says it's good. He creates the stars, the moon, the animal, everything. And, and then at the apex of his creation, he creates male and he creates female, Adam and Eve, um, and he creates them. They sin against God. Um, but before that, God had given them a mandate. And that cultural mandate was to be fruitful and to multiply, to subdue the land. What that means is to take all the things that were built into creation, take all the raw materials and use it in such a way to create and to develop, to make relationships, to build cities, to make art, whatever would come out of that, and that they would multiply, that they would have kids, they would have kids, they would have kids, and so forth, that they would have a family. Well, when they sinned against God, that mandate did not go away. Like even though sin entered into every human heart and that sin was brought into our world, that mandate didn't go away. Now, what happened is God decided that he was going to redeem through this particular family that started with Adam and Eve and the family grew and so forth. And what we see in the book of Genesis, as we've said before, is that as the family grew, the family, like your family, like my family, had issues and was highly dysfunctional, right? When you read through Genesis, and we've said this before, it's like one Jerry Springer episode after the other, right? You get to the end of Genesis, and what you have is one of the sons is sold into slavery, but then God blesses him, so he's in Egypt. Meanwhile, the family is in a famine, and they have to come to Egypt, and this son forgives them, and everything seemingly thinks it's going to be great. However, that son, whose name was Joseph, dies. There's a new pharaoh who's running Egypt. He doesn't like the family. The family went from 70 people to 2 million people. They were being fruitful and multiplying, much like we are in our redemption kids. So you have, you have, hey, we're just being obedient. And so you have, you, you have this two million people. The new Pharaoh says, uh-uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna enslave them. Another Pharaoh comes, he continues to put them in slavery. And one of the things he had them to do, because he didn't want them to grow, he didn't want them to be fruitful and to multiply, is he says, here's what you guys have to do now. You take your firstborn son and you have to take him and float him down the Nile ultimately to die. Well, there was one particular kid who made it, who's got, who God spared his life. This kid was floating down the river, and as he was down the Nile, Pharaoh's own daughter was bathing, and she took this child, and she named him Moses. And Moses was raised in the palace. Now, Moses knew that he was not Egyptian. You go, how do you know? Because Moses would probably grow up in the palace, looking at all the Egyptians, and realizing to himself, one of them is not like the others, Okay. And then he began to look at his people and the plight that they were in and the oppression in which they were experiencing. He wanted to help, but his ways of help was not good. There were two people getting into it, an Egyptian man and a Hebrew man. He jumped in to try to help, and then he began to lay hands on the Egyptian man, but in a non-biblical way, all right? And so he punches him, and he knocks, he doesn't knock him out, he kills him, all right? So he kills the man. He says, I gotta go. But we knew Moses got hands. Moses left, and then he went to the wilderness. While there, he met a man named Jethro. Jethro um, has a bunch of daughters. He married one of the daughters. They have a family. Moses is living his best life in the wilderness. And then God shows up. And he shows up in the form of a burning bush. And he speaks to Moses, and he says, it's time to go back and to let my people go. So Moses, now with his brother Aaron, have been sent to speak to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. 
What we saw last week is that first try didn't work. Pharaoh made it even harder for the Israelites. And the Israelites complained against Moses saying, you've made it worse for us. Moses complained against God and God could have turned his back and said, okay, y'all don't want me, I don't want y'all. But God had already made a promise to their forefathers and that ultimately God was going to make them their, um, as his covenant people. That he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will deliver you with a mighty hand out of the arms of Pharaoh. And so what we see now is Moses now being called by God, Moses and Pharaoh, excuse me, Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh in which God is going to display his power. He's gonna display his power. So the first section here in chapter seven, verse, verse one, it says this. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen, I, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be like a prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go to the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, so here's what he said. He said, you and your brother, you're gonna go. You're gonna speak to Pharaoh. And he's like, I'm gonna let you know, Pharaoh's not gonna listen because I'm gonna harden his heart. Now we have to deal with something first. This whole idea of hardening someone's heart because later it comes up again when it comes up, particularly in the book of Romans, that God hardens heart. Now there's a couple of thoughts here. There's some people hear this and go, we read it as, as somehow Pharaoh was gonna be a really good guy. Life was gonna be, like he was gonna be really nice, but then God intervened and hardened his heart. Like somehow Pharaoh was about to be the next Mr. Rogers, but then God came in and he, and he no, 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 here's the problem. All right, or um, Pharaoh had already had issues, right? Pharaoh had shown himself not to be like Mr. Rogers, right? Pharaoh had 2 million slaves in which he was not relenting at all. So we have to understand about the language of hardening. One, what we see, there's three different words in Exodus that, begin, that God uses when it comes to the word hardening. Um, one, it is actually, yes, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. The other one is actually Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And the other one is rather ambiguous that we don't know who the agent is. However, what we do know is that God himself is not for evil. He always stands against evil. And then God himself will also always execute justice against evil. What we have here is God is allowing, in a lot of ways, Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh was going to do anyway. And what God is doing by displaying in his, in his mighty acts that he is sovereign and he alone is sovereign is he's using wordplay to tell Pharaoh, you have done this, but I'm going to do this. Here's what I mean. One of the words that we have here for hardening, it, it, it literally means to show glory. Like that you would actually um, use weight to show glory. And what he's saying to Pharaoh is in the same way that you put weight, yokes, slavery on my particular people, that I'm now gonna put it on you in order to free them. The other word is that of like when, it, when, when something gets stiff, like with the, with the rods that were thrown down and then the, the snake. It's saying in some ways you put your hand to the throat of my people and now I'm gonna put my hand to your throat to free my people. The last one is that of severe or severity. And it has the image there, the language of childbirth, how there's severe pain and labor that comes when a woman gives birth. And it says in the same way that you tried to and did take out the firstborn, of, of sons of my people, I will now harden you in such a way that I will take out your firstborn. 
There's a picture here of God saying, I'm displaying my might ultimately for his glory and to reveal to the world and also to deliver his people. So by no means somehow was Pharaoh, if God didn't intervene, Pharaoh was gonna be a guy that we all would have liked to kick it with. No, not at all. So you have now God telling his people, or particularly Moses and Aaron, go speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh on my behalf. Verse eight, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working of a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may be become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and became, became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. So this is the beginning of God beginning to show some miraculous things. And he, he told Aaron and Moses, you guys, this is what you guys are gonna do. I want you to take your staff. I want you to throw it on the ground and it's gonna be a serpent. But then Pharaoh called in his host and it says all of the different uh, magicians and sorcerers and so forth who also have magic right? Now, I want to be clear here. As Western people, we don't believe in things like this. We just don't. Um, if we do believe as Christians that God has power, sometimes we believe like there's only power in God. There's no other secret arts that says here. Let me just tell you, it's real. It, it, this, the, just as real as God's power is being displayed through Moses and Aaron, we see the darkness of the power that's being displayed through the sorcerers. And as believers, we should believe in that there's a dark power that exists not just in the book of Exodus, but in our world now. And the reason why we should believe this is because the Bible teaches this, right? Whether we acknowledge it or not, it's present. And so the sorcerers are able to throw down um, their staff and there's also a serpent. The difference is there's a greater power that's displayed in the Lord. And the way that it shows here is that the staff that they throw, throw down, their serpent eats up the other serpents. Like what, Right? swallows it, so done, right? <laughs> and then what we begin to see from here, and we're gonna walk through this, and it's a long section, are the nine plagues. Okay, so we have a picture here of all the different plagues we're gonna walk through. So there's blood, and then there's frogs, and then there's gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, H-I-H-A-I-L, locusts, and then darkness, all things I could not wait to preach on when I became a pastor, okay? So here's, here's what we, we have, right? Let's, we'll, we'll start first with the first plague. First plague here, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, um, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going to the Nile, uh, as he's going to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to, them, say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. All right, so here's what's happening. God tells him, go meet, go meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh is gonna be at the Nile, is gonna be at the water. And this kind of repeats throughout for a while. So they show up and they say, hey, Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes, you guys again. He goes, yeah, it's us again, me and my brother Aaron. And so they're here and they said, here's the deal. God said, let his people go. Right? And we said this last week, when God says, let my people go, he's not suggesting. Like, he's not like, hey, Pharaoh, I know you have my people for a long time. Man, can, we ha can I have them back? Like, it's just like they're both of ours. We just gonna keep them at my place, right? That's, that's not what's happening here. He, 
he actually comes in and says, the Lord is saying, let my people go or else. The particular or else, the first plague, is that the Nile will turn the blood, which is exactly what happens. So Moses takes his staff, Aaron takes his staff, he puts it into the Nile, and the Nile turns to blood. Okay, what you're going to see, or what I need to tell you, when it comes to all of the plagues, these are not just random plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and boils and livestock and so forth. They're all gods. Like the Nile, the gnats, the frogs, all of these were Egyptian gods. Well, like I said before, it's not Pharaoh versus the Israelites. It's not the Israelites versus, it's not uh, Pharaoh versus Moses. It is the God of the universe versus Pharaoh saying, I am God and I alone am God. And so he begins to attack their gods. The first one is the Nile. And in that which was supposed to bring life, he says, will bring death. And so the Nile turns into blood as he said it would. And it says the people have to go and they have to dig um, other reservoirs to be able to have water. And so that's the first plague is now they go after a big God, in particular, the Nile. Well, what Pharaoh doesn't change his mind. He does not, he, his heart is hardened. Verse, verse 15, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, or excuse me, continuing in verse, and uh, picking up in verse eight, chapter eight, verse one, this is the second plague. And the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. All right, hear the thing about the frogs. It wasn't just that there were frogs. It was ultimately that the frog also was a representation of a God and particularly the God of infertility or fertility. So what the thought was is the frogs and themselves would come out of the Nile and God is showing ultimately himself as God of fertility, as God over all things, not the particular frogs. So he allows or he calls for the frogs to come in, right? And just like with the serpents and with the blood, the sorcerers were able to turn the water to blood as well. So Pharaoh's like, whatever. But when it came to the frogs, same thing. God unleashed frogs after frogs after frogs after frogs um, into the land. And I know most of you guys are probably thinking, like, frogs, like, who's afraid of a frog? I'm afraid of every animal. So if there was a bunch of frogs, I would have issues anyway. But you, you, you have frogs everywhere. So think about it, you go take a shower and there's frogs everywhere, right? You go to get in your car and there's frogs everywhere. Frogs are everywhere, right? And what's interesting to me and somewhat comical is that when Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh goes, oh, you're gonna bring frogs? He brings in the magicians. He goes, make frogs. And so they make more frogs, <laughs> right? But they already had a problem with frogs. You know, God's up there going, <laughs> got them, right? And so... <laughs> You have frogs everywhere. The difference is, though, that they can show their power, there's a greater power. And that is, God is the only one that was able to remove the frogs. They could not. And so, once again, God relents because Pharaoh goes, okay, okay, I'll let him go. He doesn't, but God relents and all the frogs die. And they have to get rid of all the frogs. That was the second plague. The third plague, verse 16 of chapter 8. That's. When the Lord said to, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And so they did. Same thing with the gnats. They're everywhere. This time there was even no warning. The gnats were everywhere. The gnats, again, were a representation of a God. The fourth plague, the flies. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, okay? We know what it's like just even from a standpoint, let's just say you're trying to take a nap in your house and there's a fly in your house. And every time you try to take a nap, it lands on your face, right? And it's just annoying. That's a one fly. 
These are zillions of flies. And by the way, they're not just there to annoy them. They're there as an act of God's judgment. He sent flies all over the place. Once again, verse 25, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. What he's trying to say is, don't leave. Why can't you just do your sacrifices here? And Moses goes, absolutely not, because the things that we need to do, you guys won't like, and you'll stone us. And besides, if God had said, we need to leave here to be able to bring um, this, to be able to go worship and sacrifice to our God. Well, Moses does not, I mean, Pharaoh does not change his heart. Verse 32, chapter eight, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Chapter nine, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go and still hold on to them, behold, the hand of God will fall with a very severe plague among your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So up until this moment now, um, now you have the magicians are going, hey, Pharaoh, this is not working. Like we can't even, we can't do this anymore. We're, we're, we're losing. Pharaoh doesn't care. Now you have God saying, now I'm actually going to harm not just your, your, your religious, although there was a religious, there was another God for the livestock, but he said, I'm gonna take away from you. And all of this is gonna land on your li- livestock. And he lets them know, oh yeah, Goshen, the little, the little suburb outside of Egypt where, where you put my people, nothing's gonna happen over there. So all of the judgment is coming upon you. And, and, and then what happens is all the livestock, all the livestock begins to die. Um, as he said, verse seven, and Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Sixth plague. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kill and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out to sores on man and beasts throughout the land of Egypt. This time he didn't even warn them. He just said, I'm gonna do what God says. So he takes the dust, he does the, the LeBron James, throws it, in the, throws it in the air and all of a sudden there's boils all over the Egyptians and all over their livestock. Meanwhile, in Goshen, that, those sort of things aren't going on, all right? And verse, or excuse me, verse 12 here, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Well, then there is a seventh plague and it's hell, H-A-I-L. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh saying to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that you may serve me. For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. Okay, here's what the writer is trying to get us to see over and over again. It is God saying, I am doing this for my purpose that his name may be known throughout all the earth. That he is going against Pharaoh for God to show that he alone is God. He alone is all powerful. He alone is all knowing. He alone is all sovereign and that he's God. He says, Pharaoh, there will be hell that's going to come. And if you don't come underneath shelter, you're going to die. 
I could have, he says, I could have just wiped you out. He goes, but I'm showing my power that the rest of the world will know. Verse 21, it says, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. What happens is they died. Well, Pharaoh still at this point has a hard heart. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased because God would relent and it ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord has spoken. Eighth plague, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show that these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs have I done among them. And you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. Like you think at this point in time that Pharaoh's like, yeah, I think, I think God's gonna win this one, right? But he doesn't. I mean, that's how arrogant and that's how his heart is so distant and so disobedient to God. But it actually says this in verse seven. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Like the magicians came and said, Pharaoh, no more. And now his servants are like, Pharaoh, let them go. We don't need them. Like, this is bad. Like we had the frogs, we had the gnats, we had the boils, the livestock died, there's locusts everywhere. Like, let them go. Pharaoh does not let them go. And then finally, for this section, the ninth plague. Verse 21, chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness in the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all of the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people in Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take, we must take care of them, take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on that for on that day, you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, when it comes to the darkness, again, this was another God. And not just any God, like the Nile, this was a pretty big deal for, for them when it came to their deity. Um, the, sun, um, the sun God was the God. And so to have darkness for three days was another way of God saying, there is no other God but me. And not only was it was an attack on their God, it was an attack on Pharaoh because it was thought in the uh, Egyptian culture that every Pharaoh would be a son of, a son, S-O-N, of the son, S-U-N. And this particular time, what God is saying is, I am the God of all creation. Like, here's what God is doing, guys. And we need to get this. Because we, we read this and we read all the plays and we're like, yeah, I kind of heard that or whatever. He's showing who he is to his people as well. They don't really know him. For these hundred years, hundred or so years, they'd been in Egypt 
presumably probably worshiping these gods and thinking these were real gods. And he's saying, the God of the livestock, I'm the God of livestock. I'm the one who created the sun. I'm the one who created Pharaoh. And I do as I please because he is God. And so when darkness begins to come around, all of a sudden you can imagine the people of Egypt. There's darkness for three days and it says a darkness that's felt. They can't see each other. They can't come outside. And yet when they look over where Goshen is, there's light. And they've got to be looking at Pharaoh like, Pharaoh, when are you going to learn? And in some ways, God is even revealing himself to them because they can clearly see this is an act of God and he's claiming to be the God of this universe. The God of the Hebrews happens to be the God of the world and the God of the universe. Now, here's what this is important for us to understand is what the writer is trying to display is the same God that created is the same God who's guiding creation. And what you see in this section in itself is when we gotta step back and go, what do we learn from this? How do we, how do we glean things from this? Um, first, we gotta say what we can't do. It is very, it is very common for people um, uh, to, one, it's hard for us to know how to apply the Bible, right? It is. When we read through an epistle, like First Peter or James, it's a lot easier to see the imperatives. What should we do? What should not, we not do? However, it's way different when you read the Old Testament. And where we get in trouble is when we start looking and reading from the Old Testament in ways that we ought not. So let me give some ways that we ought not to read. First, we ought not to read this as, um, one, a particular book on just morality and what to do and what not to do, right? This is not a book on saying, hey, uh, don't be like Pharaoh, be like Moses, as if Moses didn't murder somebody, right? Like, that's not it. The other part of this, we can't read in this allegorically and say, okay, this is what this is like, and now start interpreting every natural event that happens in terms of an earthquake or a hurricane or a tsunami and saying, oh, that's God judging that nation and those particular people because that's what God does because we read that in Exodus that one day, right? And I know a lot of people do that. They're wrong, okay? That's not, that, that's not what's happening here. Nor is it to say, oh, we all have pharaohs in our life. And you need to go against the pharaohs of your life. Go to them and say, thus says the Lord, you need to give me a raise, pharaoh, right? Uh, thus says, no, 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 no. Like none of this, this is not about any of that, okay? This is not about any of those things. This is revealing to us who God is. And the reason why I started this with starting in the beginning, because what we have with echoes here is God saying he's in control of creation. The one who said out of chaos, he brought order that he's even sovereign over that, that what he does, if you notice in the plagues, he takes creation and he actually brings chaos with it. And he's showing us the grand narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is creation all the way to recreation. And in the middle of it is redemption. And that God sovereignly in his own control can use creation for judgment as he does here in the plagues. And he can also use creation for redemption as we see through the resurrection is that what we see is that God is in control and he uses the animal kingdom for the most of this to be able to show it, right? I'm telling you, there is like, we have to be, listen, I know when I preach a lot, hear me, and this is maybe a fault of mine or whatever, it's my personality. When I preach a lot, there's sometimes a lot of humor because some of you guys think I'm funny and it kind of flatters me. And so there's, see, see what I did there? So there, there is some humor, however, hear me, just because there's humor does not ever mean that we should ever have a posture and we relate to God as anything but holy, that he is to be revered. Like, is he loving and is he gracious? Absolutely. But he also has wrath and he has justice and he has judgment. Same God. And he's not just existing in the left side of your Bible and he left that judgment part there and it doesn't show up on the right side of your Bible because he's God, 
right? He's never changed. And he's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So there has to be a sense of even though there's fear of God in which we ought to have, there's fear because of who he is and what he can do. And one of the best ways for me to describe this is talking about animals. One, because I, I told you already, I'm, I'm afraid of animals. Which ones? All of them, all right? Domestic ones, they're all, they're all dangerous, guys, until Jesus comes and restores all things, guys. Y'all need to, seriously, y'all need to watch out. So you have... So I was at a, friend's, a friend of a friend's house um, in college, and this particular person's dad is a hunter. Or he does a bunch of other stuff, but he hunts on the side. It's a little side game. And so he goes out and, and hunts all his animals, and then he, he, um, he keeps them in a particular room at their house. And so all the animals, last, last service I said that he captured, but I heard you're not supposed to say that. Um, all the animals that he's, he's, uh, he's, he has, um, he has displayed in this room. And he kills these animals with a, um, with a sword. I'm not a sword, a bow and arrow, right? He, and then he pulls out a sword and he's like, right, right. He kills them. <laughs> oh, this is bad, guys. Sometimes you just need to stay in your lane. Anyway, so let me give a sports reference. No. All right, so he has, he, he has, he, he has a bow and arrow that he, that, he, that he kills these animals with. And he has one particular animal that scared the crud out of me. It's a polar bear. Right? Now, I don't know if he was supposed to do this or not, guys. I'm not endorsing anything that this guy did. But he had a polar bear. And the polar bear was like, like this. Right? And even though I knew the polar bear was dead, I didn't stand that close to it, just in case. Right? <laughs> just seeing the dead polar bear gave me a sense of like, dang. Right? What about the one who created the polar bear? that when we begin to see these magnificent things, when, it's, when you guys who love being out in the wilderness go, wow, it's bigger than me. What about the one who created the wilderness? What about the one who created the outdoors, the one who's sovereign over all of it? This is the one who keeps saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, I am. He says, I will be who I will be. And that's what we ought to be revealed from this particular section. That, not how to have a better life or how to be the best person or, no, no, no. It's not even about morality in this particular case. It shows us who God is, that we may see him for all of who he is. In this particular case, that he is a God who brings judgment. And that is hard for us to swallow sometimes. We don't want to talk about a God who judges or a God who has wrath or a God who has created hell. We don't like those things and yet the Bible reveals to that. It reveals to us that's what God is like. And if you can't say, well, how could he be a God of love and have judgment? Have you ever loved anything? Have you ever loved anybody? What happens when somebody does something to that person? Do you say, hey, I'm, a, I'm just a loving person right? You take those two women who were just up here right now. You take Dina, you take Lori. Lori's got six kids, right? Let somebody do something to one of her kids, right? You think she's gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna be at the table afterwards. No, she's like, oh, 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 just wait, right? And there's, there's this, because she loves her kids. If God loves the world and he loves justice and righteousness and truth and beauty, then anything against that, he's going to judge because he loves, so when we say we have an idea of a God who does not judge, we, don't, we have an idea. We don't have the God of the Bible. There, there's, a, there's a writer who wrote, um, Miroslav Volf, who wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. It may be one of the best books I've ever read in my life. 
Long book, but it's a good book. And he talks about reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, he himself talks about this whole idea of people saying they want to be nonviolent, yet they don't believe in a God who judges. And he says that's incompatible. And in there, the way he describes it, it's a longer quote here, and there are some harsh things, explicit things that are mentioned here that are hard to read. Disclaimer. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb or the bir- for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. Here's what he's saying. He says, if you've lived in a war-torn country, and you've seen these things. The only way that you can, like the, what you gotta do is going, if you did that to me, I have to go back and do that to you. I have to pick up the sword. There's no way that I can be nonviolent um, by the belief that somehow God himself is not, doesn't bring vengeance. He goes, the only way a thesis or a theology like that could be born is in the quiets of a suburb community where nothing like that ever happens. Because that's not the reality of the world. He says this, and a scorched land soaked in the blood of innocent of the innocent, the ideal will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and, not, and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The God of the Bible is worthy of our worship because he's, the God, because he's God, not because he does the things that we want him to do. We relate to God through the lens of our circumstance not through the reality of who he is. That we relate to God and we say, God, we want these things to happen, good things. We want these things to happen to these people. I want this thing to happen in my life. And then if God does those things, then we decide if he's good or not. However, the God of the Bible is good because he is God, regardless of what he does in our lives. And, then, and this is the way the God of the Bible is presented to us as we relate to him to be able to know him fully and to be fully known by him. And this God happens to be, as we see here, he's a God that brings judgment. Now, before we think, well, I'm okay with it because it's Pharaoh, and I'm okay with with the Pharaohs of this world, whoever these most evil people are. But there's a writer here, a Nobel Peace Prize, who talks about this particular theme of judgment too and what we can do. He says this, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's Andrew, I mean, that's Alexander S. <laughs> and, and he says, who, who is willing? None of us are willing. None, none, none of us are willing to destroy a piece of our own heart. And so how do we relate to a God who's going to judge and we find that that reality cuts through our own hearts? The only one who we know who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart is God. The one who shows us here who's sovereign over creation 
is the same one who spoke things to existence, who's the same one that we see in Jesus Christ as Yahweh in the flesh. The one who looks at creation in the storm and he speaks it and he tells it to calm. The one who takes the water and he turns it to wine. These are not just random stories. It is Jesus showing that he is Yahweh in the flesh to bring about deliverance. And the only way that deliverance is actually brought about is if there's punishment and if there's judgment. And yet he's willing to allow the judgment on the punishment that is due for you and for me to be laid upon himself that it may cut through his own heart in order that we may have redemption. That he experiences the darkness that the New Testament describes when Jesus goes to the cross, the creation in itself, that there's darkness and there's quaking and the rocks split. But even in doing so, and that he can bring with the chaos that he can bring about judgment in creation, that he can also bring about salvation. That it is through the resurrection that God shows that the very thing that touches us all, death, does not phase him at all. And that we who now believe in him may have new life, not because he's gotten rid of the idea that he's a God who judges, because he's actually faithfully judged his son on our behalf because he desires to be with us that we may be with him. So when you say, what is a so what of a book like Exodus or a section like this, there's only one so what, and that is worship. That we begin to see who God is, namely in the person of Jesus, we see what he's done for us through his death and his resurrection, see how he sent us the spirit that we may be lived for him, And when we begin to worship him, it was we gather as people and we begin to in the same way that when my grandfather died, that we shared stories about what he's like, that we share stories of not a a dead God, but a God who lives and reigns. And we share stories with one another about what this God is like. When we begin to believe in this God through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, there is where our morality flows from. We begin to believe in this God and what he's like. That's where we begin to understand what relationships look like, what it looks like for us to be a people of God in business, in the marketplace. What does it begin when we begin to do these things and share the story of the gospel afresh to be able to say, this is what God is like. This is what he's been like. This is who he is. And this is what he's gonna one day do. He's gonna one day restore and redeem all of creation. Not, not, not at all because he doesn't judge, but because he judges. And we've just been so faithful to receive his grace that he's just as faithfully in Christ, not due to our sin. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for the great grace in which you extend us through your son, Jesus. For that, we are thankful. That in Christ Jesus, we see that everything finds its amen, its yes. And so, Father, we only escape judgment, not because of our morality, not because of where or when or who we were born to, but that we were born again by the spirit of God and whom you've given us because of Jesus. That Father, that we see that the ultimate plague, Lord, of death passes over us because it did not pass over your son, Jesus. And that Father, the, the, the life in which you give that does not come from the Nile River, but ultimately comes from the river of life, which is in Christ and by his spirit, that we have new life, that we may live for you and with you. And so God, we pray that we'd be able to gather this week as we eat meals with one another and that we'd be able to share and tell the story of who you are and what you are like. That we would gather our children and our friends around and be able to share and tell the story of who you are like. That we would continue to repetitively tell the story and Lord, until we finally get it, until we begin to worship you and to give our whole lives to you for who you are, what you have done in our lives. Father, we thank you in Christ's name, amen.